Happy 2021, friends and neighbors, and thank you for taking part in this little venture called Scoring at the Movies. We're the baseball-loving hosts of this sports movie podcast that finds its way under your device every other Thursday. If you haven't seen The Fan, but you're listening to us anyway, you're nuts. And you also better know that we're going to have our spoiler hats on. I'm the guy who attends baseball games on the regular, even though I don't have a job to pay for the tickets, Ryan Ellis. And here's the powerful outfielder who stopped caring but does hit the ball opposite field nearly every time, even in a monsoon, Chris Gregorio. Thanks, Ryan. It felt like I was looking in the mirror watching Bobby Rayburn hit those home runs in the pouring <laughs> rain, just like I was reliving my own exploits time and time again. It's funny that you gave your intro in that way, that you're the unemployed... Knife salesman? Yeah, knife salesman, I guess. Knife peddler? Who's willing to spend it all to go to every baseball game that the San Fran Giants play. I am employed, and yet people seem to think I have no job and just spend all my money. In my case, I guess it's more whiskey than it is sports tickets. But nonetheless, <laughs> I feel like this is my opportunity to re-emphasize the fact that I do have a job. And I don't just spend my time watching movies and talking to you about them. And ironically, when it comes to the baseball sense, I'm the one that used to go opposite field all the time. And you, I don't think I've ever seen, ever have. That's true. I'm physically incapable of going to the opposite field. Having seen this movie, I feel weird now talking about any kind of amateur athletic achievement or just experience because God knows I don't want to come across like Gil in this movie whenever we talk about what we've experienced ourselves. But when you mention our own softball past, I should have really been wearing three different layers of my own baseball shirt or even better, your baseball shirts, one on top of the other as an homage to both Gil wearing his jersey and then Bobby wearing multiple layers of his own jersey just out of sheer superstition. This is San Francisco, though, so it makes sense that they have to wear multiple layers because it's damn cold out there, even in the summer. I know San Fran's weather is notoriously kind of iffy. I mean, it's Northern California for all intents and purposes, and it's right on the coast. But dear God, are they so accustomed to inclement weather in an outdoor stadium that they are willing to see a game through to its finale, like you said, in a monsoon to the point where there's inches of water on the field and they've already played enough innings to just call the game and have it be a result. They didn't have to play the ninth inning. They could have just mm -hmm. called it. They were like bottom of the eighth or top of the ninth at that point, right? You could argue that the officials knew, higher up officials knew that Bobby needed the game to continue because otherwise Gail would kill his kid. But I don't know that anyone really knew that other than, well, then again, the radio hosts knew it. So I'm not sure who knew and who didn't know. The cops were itching to kill him. This white man they wanted to kill so badly. There must have been some of them thinking, can I just kill the black guy standing beside me instead? Ooh, sick burn at the end. We record this still in 2020, by the way, the end of the year of Black Lives Matter. Anyway, the point is they want to shoot this guy and they don't really know why they should want to because I don't think they know the story of what Gil has done. No, they don't at that point. So back to the baseball thing. Yeah, why would they not have called the game if nobody other than a few people, the radio hosts for some reason... And Bobby and Manny, and I don't know who else even knew about the kids being kidnapped. But if nobody really truly in the know, including the umpires, because they have the call on that. When the game starts, the umpires are the ones that call the game. If they don't know that, and of course they don't play the umpires now, <laughs> De Niro's character, but regardless, 
then why would the game continue? Because they would just say, well, we have to at least take a break again like they did already or it's over. Have you ever seen an umpire mask that looked anything like the home plate umpire mask? It looked like a weird cross between a standard umpire's mask and a Jason mask. Creepy with really hmm. thick horizontal guards across it in a way that I've never seen. That's probably the point because he is a Jason type stalker now oh, in this movie. And Tony Scott, our third Tony Scott movie, we're a sports movie podcast. Who thought that would happen? <laughs> we knew Days of Thunder was a sports movie. We jammed Last Boy Scout into that category. And as a reviewer named Adrian Turner said... It explores baseball and stalking and has little to say about either. But Tony Scott does know about violence and killing. He does. And about tension, horrific kinds of things. So maybe that's why the mask was like that. Purely cinematic, not at all realistic. I could buy that. I'm kind of glad that you mentioned that reviewer's comments because the other question I had for you is, did it feel like this was maybe two different movies that were pitched and then at one point Tony Scott was just like, you know what, if I take the beginning half of this one and the back end of that one and just mesh it together, maybe we've got something that I can shoot. Because there was a point in the movie, and you can almost like draw a hard line in the sand, where all of a sudden it stops being that stalker movie and starts being a weird thrill ride movie. I don't know that it was an earned transition, you know what I mean? Or whether it did the movie any favors, to be honest with you. The front half of this movie, to me, felt a lot like Falling Down, the Michael Douglas movie. Yep, agreed. I wrote that note down too. It's a very close comparable because you're getting a gut-wrenching blow-by-blow of life kicking Gil in the nuts over and over. Half of the time he deserves it because he's a real piece of work himself, obviously. But a disturbed person is being shit on and how are they going to react? Oh, what a shock they react with violence. Exactly. You're just kind of left squirming and feeling uncomfortable. And frankly, I thought that was well done because I think that's what you're trying to get the audience to feel. But then there's a hard line when all of a sudden it shifts away from that entirely and all of a sudden you don't really care about his job anymore, he gets fired. You never see the kid anymore, that whole thing is out the window. You don't really get any of John Leguizamo's character or Ellen Barkin's character anymore and then it's just De Niro and Wesley Snipes. But it totally loses that squirmy feeling and goes Cape Fear where it's just De Niro terrorizing Snipes. I love De Niro in this movie. It might not be his best performance, but I like anything Max Cady-esque. That whole Cape Fear <laughs> performance is fun to me, and that falling down half of the movie is not fun, but interesting to watch at least. Taxi Driver-esque also. Yes, that's the other one that came to mind, exactly, because he's a protagonist that's also an antagonist. You're not supposed to feel sorry for him because he brings it on himself. At a certain point, the movie just took a hard left and left me feeling a little disoriented. And frankly, after the psychological twists and turns that the front half of this movie offers you, by the time it gets into the thriller-esque moments at the end of the movie, it felt almost hollow. That kind of emotional purging that should happen at the end of the movie kind of happened for me in the middle of it. And then by the back half of it, I'm just like, oh, well, I guess he's going to get shot now. Okay, whatever. So you didn't really care then. Okay, yeah. fair. I liked it more than the critics did. I'll give you the numbers on that right now. Rotten Tomatoes, critics, 37%. That's it. That's One of the undeserved. worst scores I've ever reported to you. Yeah, I don't think it's that bad either. 4.8 out of 10 and 34% of audiences. It also completely bombed at the box office. It was 89th that year. And that was back when fewer movies were released. So 89th is pretty low. Independence Day was number one. Jerry Maguire, we covered that a few years ago, was number four. Space Jam, we also covered, I think that same year, a couple of years ago, was 18th. And Tin Cup, which we covered, I think our second or third movie, was 28th. So a good sports movie year. This isn't quite in the same class as Jerry Maguire and Tin Cup, but I think it's better than the critics said it was. 
It was released in August, so it got buried a little bit. That's not really a big month to get released in any year, but 1996 of August. TriStar put it out there 25 years ago. And it cost $55 million, but didn't even make half that much at the box office. And you would wow. think that De Niro, he was the year before, not a big box office blockbuster, but reputable enough at the time. Cape Fear wasn't that long before. Snipes was pretty big in the early 90s. We've covered him three times now. Major League in 89. White Man Can't Jump in 92, which we both loved, I think, right? And we oh, like yeah. Major League a lot. And now here's his third sports movie, even though he's not an athlete, ironically. And John Crook, who's in this movie, is one of the Giants players. I think he bats cleanup or fifth or something all the time. I think also was involved in helping out wherever he could. Cal Ripken was Snipes' actual batting coach, but Kruk, I'm sure, gave him really? some pointers and tips. And he said that Wesley could not swing a bat. And I buy that because unless he hits a dribbler, he barely, <laughs> if ever, hits in that movie because that's part of the point. And he couldn't throw, they said, either. White man can't jump. He looks like he can play basketball as well as anybody. I don't think he could. And in this movie, when he's hitting, which is pretty much all you ever see him do, he fields once and he runs into Benicio del Toro's character. They wipe out and he has a bad rib for what looks to be or sounds to be two months. Does a rib cage injury last two months? But anyway, to finish the point, every time he hits the ball, it's either up the middle or the other way. I don't see him pull the ball once. And I will agree with Kruk. Not a very good looking swing. It's interesting to me that this movie was released at a time that it more or less would get buried because of the cast in it that you've touched on already. Of course, De Niro and Snipes. But also Benicio Del Toro, who maybe was still a young actor at this point. He also had Ellen Barkin, like I said, John Leguizamo, who was also young. And the guy that I enjoy more than I often expect to in the movies he's in, usually smaller parts, but I kind of dig what he does a lot of the time. And a lot of smaller actors that I was just pointing at all the time going, oh, that guy, that guy, that guy. This movie had a surprisingly good cast for it to A, cost $55 million in 96 and get dumped in August tells you what the studio thought of it we often talk about the portrayal of the sport in the movie because i would argue it's pretty poor in this by and large and maybe yes. that's just because it focuses so heavily on snipes's character obviously being the star bobby rayburn center fielder guy but he doesn't look like he can bat like you said even in the close-up super tight shots of him that are cutting away all the time he doesn't look like he can swing a bat i don't think you get a single handout shot of a baseball swing it's always tight on the pitcher then tight on snipes's face and then maybe a tight shot of his upper body swinging and then you get one of those things where he quote unquote hits the ball and then clearly some extra on the background lobs a ball over the camera so that <laughs> it's supposed to be a blistering shot to the gap but it looks like i've just soft tossed it to first base and then you might get a shot of the outfielder running towards it it looked bad like when snipes hits a double the opposite way i think it was when he breaks out of his slump he hits a double to the opposite field and you think it's going gap because he rounds first and he's going to second but then when you see the shot of the outfielders the ball lands in front of the center fielder he just picks it up and it just looks like a routine sort of single how the hell did he get to second base so it's that kind of stuff that just felt a lazy and b maybe as we've talked about with other movies the production team just didn't really either care or know that much about the game in a really lazy way so when you talk about guys like Cal Ripken being involved with the production, it kind of blows my mind a little bit. That would indicate that they do care about how the game looks on screen. And I never would have guessed that to be true. And casting John Crook as one of the players has a decent amount of screen time, has a little bit of dialogue. Steve Lyons is one of the broadcasters. Steve He may Lyons. not have been a good player. Remember the guy from the White Sox who played every position at one point in his career, pulled his pants down if he slid into first base <laughs> and I think was out on a play. I don't remember broadcaster that. Broadcaster with Fox for now. a long time. 
He always would say when he first started doing it, he wasn't terrible at it, but he's obsessed with saying the first baseman was picking and grinning. And he stopped doing that a little bit, but then I think he said something racist or sexist or what have you several years ago and lost his job. But they had baseball people involved. I think it just comes down to the fact that Tony Scott didn't know anything about baseball. His writer, Fief Sutton, he wrote for Cheers, also produced episodes of Cheers long ago. That's why I recognized the name when I was looking up the movie before I even started watching it. And I thought, I know this name, but from where? And I saw it so many times in Cheers episodes. Maybe he knows nothing about baseball either. And he did not write much when it came to movies. Could be because they thought, well, if this is all you can do, you're not writing anything else. He only ever wrote two movies, despite all the success on Cheers. And they based it on Peter Abraham's 1995 book. That's a fast turnaround for something that doesn't seem like it'd be, we gotta make this movie kind of project. And incidentally, in the book, Bobby Rayburn is white. I like the touch that it's a black guy that this older middle-aged white man is obsessed about because you get this whole dynamic. And I don't think that De Niro's character is supposed to be racist anyway, but so often people, whether they want to admit it or not, don't like anybody different from them. And he is absolutely pedestalizing somebody who he otherwise would not have respect for. Again, the John Turturro thing I've mentioned so many times in all the podcasts I do and do the right thing. Magic Johnson and Prince and Eddie Murphy are different. They're not the N-word because they're special. And Bobby's special. Now, again, there's not really a racial component in this, but it does help the movie have some more bite and some more spice that the main character, if you want to call him that, Snipes' character is black. It gives it something else, I think, whether it's really ever commented on or not. I guess it isn't. It's also not really a buddy movie, but there's also the black and white dynamic in Scott's previous sports movie, quote-unquote, Last Mm -hmm. Boy Scout, which also doesn't really dwell on race, but it does have that underlying hint the whole time. Wendy Feinerman, the producer on this movie, a woman produced this movie. She's coming off of Forrest Gump a couple years before. And I looked at the credits when they're playing out. The costume designer, I believe, the art director, a lot of women names, from what I can understand about this, involved in this movie that is so macho. It doesn't hate women. They're not really a part of the movie at all, apart from Ellen Barkin's character. And very briefly, the woman that Snipes is with on opening day. He's obviously had a one-night stand. It seems that way, at least. So anyway, that seems odd to me, too, that they have got so many women involved behind the scenes in major department head type roles, and yet it is not a movie for women. Probably one of the reasons it failed is because it is such a macho kind of film. And we've seen this basic thing from De Niro, especially before in Taxi Driver, in King of Comedy, even more so, where he plays an obsessed person who goes too far and you have to worry about him killing people, which he does in one of those movies. And also it's all a tie back to his, not his first movie, but one of his first movies, Bang the Drum Slowly in 73. Did you ever see that movie or even hear of it? No, I've heard of it. He plays a catcher in that one and not a pitcher, but he's a former pitcher in this movie too. So there's another tie in that way. And of course, his big sports movie in his career, which you don't like, is Raging Bull. (laughs) So there's always that kind of thing hanging over every movie he does that has anything to do with sports in it because he was the famous boxer in Raging Bull. When you said his famous sports movie, I thought for sure you were going to say The Comeback or something like that. The infamous Sylvester Stallone, Robert De Niro boxing movie from like, what is it, four years ago now? What is it called? Grudge Match. Grudge Match. That's it. Yeah. Grudge Match. Not as bad a movie as you would think, given two guys in their nearly 70 age range going at it. The two most famous actor boxers of all time going head to head, which was obviously the selling point to the studio. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about it within the context of De Niro's past movies like that, because you're probably right. I didn't dislike this movie at all, and I agree with you in thinking that it got a little bit of a bad rap at the time it was released. This is not De Niro's finest hour, for sure. He's definitely just conjuring up past performances and just letting experience play him through the movie. It was enjoyable for me, and that's why I said I really liked him in this movie. It was done better in his past, so maybe I should just be watching that movie. 
So I don't know, mm-hmm. maybe that is part of the reason why it's so looked down upon. I'd be interested to know whether that race aspect of it was an intentional choice on the part of Tony Scott or the production team in general, or whether it was, guys, we want Wesley Snipes. He's an actor that certainly looks the part of a star athlete for sure. This is why it's so interesting to me that he's apparently so abysmally bad at all sport because the guy is just like a physical specimen and obviously just a great athlete in terms of physical prowess. Played baseball in multiple movies, Major League in this, played basketball in White Man Can't Jump, was a boxer and undefeated, and was a football player in Wildcats. Right. Even when he's at the driving range in this movie, and I can tell you, his golf swing is horrifically bad. It's also interesting to me that the other antagonist in this movie for Bobby, the Benicio del Toro primo character, is Mexican, right? Hispanic, at least. Hispanic. It's not like it's the black guy in the movie against a whole bunch of white dudes. You've got a Hispanic man who's behind De Niro and Snipes is probably the third lead in the movie, at least for a good chunk of it. Was it maybe an intentional comparison to Barry Bonds, who at this point would have been just rising to stardom, I guess, with the Pirates still in 96? I don't think he was yet with the Giants at that point, right? I'll give you some facts and figures on this, but before I do, I'll give you my nutshell because he's in my nutshell. You ready? Give it to me. Oh, by the way, I didn't tell you this part. The title in probably Hispanic countries, Spain, that kind of thing as well, was El Fanatico. <laughs> I like it. I like that a lot more the than fan the fan. is a decent title, but yeah, anyway, yeah, El Fanatico. But here's the nutshell. Barry Bonds slugs umpire for calling him out at the plate. Because that's what the fans would see at the end. The umpire called him out. Okay, I don't agree, but why is he slugging him? <laughs> they don't know that the guy behind the mask is a psycho stalker who's got his son. Why does the umpire have a giant <laughs> knife? Where did that come from? <laughs> well, he had to protect himself against the guy who's slugging him. That's true. And I say Barry Bonds slugs him because is it just they didn't want to get sued by Bonds or Major League Baseball that they didn't just call him Barry Bonds? Even though Bonds' name is mentioned in this, at one point his name dropped, and Snipes just sloughs it off. Oh, <laughs> Barry Bonds, so what? Maybe the most talented player who's ever suited up. Forget the drugs. He still is one of the most talented people who ever played the game. But I think it might just be something to do with not wanting to get sued because he is Bonds. He goes to San Francisco on a free agent contract, and that was after the 92 season. The very last thing he ever did for Pittsburgh was the throw home that didn't get the very slow-footed Sid Bream in the game that sent the Braves to the World Series. Bonds, it's not his fault, but he threw the ball home high or wide or something. And this last thing he ever did with the Pirates. And then that very next year, went to the Giants, had a huge year. They didn't make the playoffs back before the wild card. And the Braves won the division, but they had to win 148 games or something to beat the Giants, who were really good too. And it came down to the last weekend of the season in that year. But yeah, he was a Giant already. He had been for a few years. And as good as he was with the Pirates, his numbers with the Giants are, well, they should be at least, Hall of Fame worthy. Okay, well, that's an even closer comparison then, because in my mind's eye, for some reason, maybe it's just the passage of time now. If you call him Barry in this movie, I'll understand, because he is Barry Ponce. Right down to being a dick to people. Aside from the fairly close physical resemblance between Wesley Snipes in this movie and Barry Bonds at this time... He's a center fielder in this movie who, like you said, goes to San Fran on a huge contract. They talk about his batting average and RBI numbers. And at this point in Barry Bonds' career also, he was more an all-round player than he was just the home run king that he would become, right? So when he hit the home run record at that point, he was almost like a parody of himself. He still had an amazing batting average on base percentage and all that good stuff. But he was just known for the power stuff. But back in the mid-90s, he was the all-round average threat, RBI threat, speed threat. I thought for the life of me, why isn't this Barry Bonds? And you're probably right, it's licensing or something. So that's why I thought it was so cute and clever when there was that one brief moment of Gil saying, yeah, I don't know who you are, Barry Bonds? <laughs> Shh, no. <laughs> Bonds of Bobby Rayburn. 
they didn't really get into the details of the contract very much. So you don't know how long this contract is. All you know is 40 million. They say he's a $40 million man, but is that 40 million over four years, six years, eight years? What's the annual salary? Because it was also around this time in history where salaries for baseball players started to go truly bananas in terms of increasing year over year. And I had to look it up. What was the highest paid per year salary value in MLB in the 90s? And interestingly enough, for two years, it was Joe Carter in the American League anyway. Oh, okay. I think it was 92 and 93 or 93 and 94 when he was making about five and a half million per year. He was the highest paid player in the AL. And I think Bobby Bonilla had him beat in the NL by a million. Right. Or so. The Mets signed him and he was never good with them. I think he's still being paid by the Mets to this day. Something he like will a, be until he's an old man. Yeah, like a million a year or something crazy. By the time you get to 98, 99, I think is when you get A-Rod signing his first quarter billion dollar contract or thereabouts with the Texas Rangers. If you adjust it for inflation, that A-Rod contract with Texas is still the highest contract value, even exceeding Garrett Cole's contract with the Yankees last year. Again, adjusted for inflation. To be in the running is something at this point, because that contract was 20-ish years ago. Yeah. But then A-Rod was probably worth that much money in baseball. Well, he was overpaid. I've told that story before that I don't know what happened, obviously, but I think his name was Tom Hicks, the Rangers owner, was bidding against himself. I'll give A-Rod 15 million. Okay, we're out. I'll give him 20. You got him, Tom. 25. Why are you still talking? You had him $10 million ago. You're bidding against yourself, stupid. That's when you have too much money. You just don't care. 10 million now, that's pocket change. And the Rangers did not win, even though he was great for them, but they didn't win any kind of games at all with him. You know what we didn't talk about almost half an hour ago, by the way? I see you doing it right now, taking a sip of beer. What are you drinking? I'm asking you finally in this podcast. This is my cruiser all day pale ale. I couldn't wait anymore, Ryan. I had to crack it open. This is a thirsty movie. Cruiser. Cruiser, yeah. Okay. You know me. I like to cruise around the base paths when I play softball or baseball. Or That's as fast as you go. Yeah, cruising speed is my top speed. <laughs> Not an intentional segue by any stretch of the imagination, but it's something that I did want to ask you about anyway. I think it's A, human nature, and B, perfectly acceptable to talk within the context of personal experience, right? So we're both fans of the movies. I think we're also kind of statistical geeks to certain extents. And we also have, within the extent we can, some experience playing the games. But there's times in this movie, particularly by the latter stages of it, when you truly understand Gil's fantasy world that he's living in, it made me sort of think back and question myself, how do I come across? I never want to sound like I know what I'm talking about because I played the game. I think there's like three or four or five times in the movie where Gil calls into the radio show or is talking to Bobby. He's giving advice or he's criticizing. And then he always finishes off with, I know what I'm talking about because I played the game. And within his fantasy world, that might include a cup of coffee in the bigs. But in reality, we find out he topped out with Coop in Little League, right? And that was the extent of it. Is this like some real pissed off writer who just got sick of listening to Joe every day, you and I talking about their relative experience with sports? I played Little League, so I know what I'm talking about. You, Joe Torre, you should know better than that. I can tell you the proper play would have been to put Marion Rivera out in the eighth inning. I don't think we do that. We, meaning you and I, don't do that. Yeah, sorry. When I say we, I mean us specifically. We talk about this stuff in our personal lives with each other, but also because we do this bloody podcast. But I like to think we don't do that. Did you have that same experience listening to Gil in this movie? Was it as cringy to hear him talk about the game in the way he did? No. No? No. 
okay, knowing the kind of person he is, it's harder to take this. It's almost like if you heard him say anything and you find out his character is a raging racist, then you're going to have that blind spot, if you will. Not even a blind spot, but you know what kind of person he is. But just the fact that any fan is going to act like Tori should have had Rivera. No, a better actually example would be the Blake Snell thing from the World Series this past year. Yeah, right? Kevin Cash, Kevin Cash pulled Blake Snell going by the way Tampa always does things. And it didn't work. And if it had worked, no one would have questioned it, probably. Maybe Blake Snell would have been mad, but he wouldn't have had any right to question it because that's how Tampa does things. It backfires. They maybe would have lost the series anyway. They might have lost that game anyway. But you can question it when it looks like it blatantly failed because you're going simply by math and stats and stuff. So I think any fan has a right to question their team because that's what fans are. Here's my angle on this, though, especially. I get how athletes can resent fans, as Bobby talks about. I don't care anymore. Especially in their downtime, when he does the hand gesture, when Gil tries to talk to him in the bar. That was rude, but I get why he is thinking, this is my downtime. And of course, he has a fight with Primo minutes later in the bathroom, but just a separate issue. On the other hand, PR is part of his job. A friend of mine said a long time ago that Ryan Sandberg, who at the time had one of the best contracts in baseball, but said something about how I'm not a PR guy, I'm not public, I don't like doing that kind of stuff. My friend said that Sandberg wasn't obligated, and I thought, yes, he is. Part of why he's getting this much money is to be a representative in the community of the Chicago Cubs. So that's part of the job. The other angle on this, though, when Bobby says on the beach that he stopped caring, I get that to some extent. That makes sense. You have to relax. In 162 games, you can't always be, and maybe some players are, but most players can't always be, which is not the way Bobby is anyway. He's not that kind of intense player. But you have to chill out sometimes. You can't always act like, oh my God, I was bad in one game. That's going to happen when you play for six months straight. The best players have slumps. That's why you don't bat 800 or 1,000. But I also agree as Gil's point of view is, that the fans are the reason these guys end up being multimillionaires in the first place. Oh, yeah. So when somebody says, and I hear this on wrestling podcasts, I still listen to those, when those guys act like, well, when that fan or that writer or that dirt sheet guy ever booked a wrestling match, he can come talk to me. Okay, there, Bruce Pritchard, for example, Jim Ross. The minute you guys have a bad meal from some professional chef, okay, don't question that. You're not entitled to. You don't know how to cook. You don't know what goes into that. So I know my thoughts are all over the place on this one, but I think it's a varied kind of issue. There's a lot of angles you can take on it. But my bottom line is, if I can nutshell it, athletes have a right to be pissed off the way fans are sometimes, but fans have a right to say what they want to. They don't have a right to do what Gil does in this movie, of course. And Gil's not wrong in saying that you wouldn't have $40 million if people like me didn't care about you. Fans have an absolute right to question the decisions. It would be a hell of a boring pastime following sports if you just had to quietly accept everything your team does and never debate what do they call it? Monday morning or Monday at Monday morning quarterback? Monday morning quarterback or armchair quarterback. We thought about calling this podcast armchair quarterbacks. That was in the running. So if you couldn't do that, yeah, it would be super boring. I guess what made part of Gill's performance in this cringy to me is because in the past, anyway, I've listened to a lot of sports talk radio and the number of times people will call in with questions or comments or criticisms and finish their thought with, and I played x sport when i was like 15 years old so i know what i'm talking about no you can have a criticism but don't pretend for a second that playing junior whatever or recreational whatever entails anywhere near the same level of pressure and decision making that professional sports do because the pressure must be immense on some of these people particularly the coaches and managers that have to make decisions to pull or whatever you can have an opinion and i fully support that but just have an opinion. Don't just feel like you have to say, 
I play the sport, and thus I am entitled to the opinion. You know the biggest problem then with talk radio when it comes to the fans like Gil in this movie? And what you're saying is the lack of humility. Yes. If they were to say, I don't think Bobby should bat third, I don't think Bobby's playing well, maybe he needs to sit out, and he's got this ribcage injury, which I guess the fans wouldn't know about for two months, which maybe can happen, I don't know, it seems like a long time. I don't think that is one thing, but to act like, well, I know what the San Francisco manager should do. That's the problem. I agree with you on that one. When fans do that, I am fully with you. I'm fully with Bobby Rayburn. That's bullshit when they act like, well, I'm right, and everybody else in the world is wrong unless they agree with me, because that's Twitter. That's modern Twitter about any issue. And maybe that's a good comparison. And I understand also that sports talk radio encourages these kinds of hardline approaches to comments because that gets people riled up and that gets people listening, calling in and all that stuff. So whatever. It's always been a pet peeve of mine whenever I've listened to these things that people just can't have an opinion. They have to try to justify their absolute right to the opinion through some dubious connection to the sport. It's just like a weird thought that came to mind listening to Gil in this movie because that is something that it does really well, mimics that sort of hardcore fandom via sports talk radio. Which Ellen Barkin does encourage. She and... Well, not so much Kurt Fuller, her co-host. That guy's been in everything, it seems. He's one of those actors. He's the that guy actor you talk about all the time. Wayne's World's one of the more reputable movies he's been in. Bev and I covered that a couple of years ago. He's the co-host, but then Ellen Barkin's clearly the star of this team and the one that gets people riled up. She should have had a better career than she ever had. She definitely helps the score factor in this film. But I think another subtextual thing that Scott's doing, and one of the reasons why this movie can't be as bad as those critics and even the fans seem to think it was at the time or now, they don't say it, but I think part of it is that how dare that fucking bitch say anything about sports? What does she know? I know people right now in 2020. Sorry, we're recording this in 2020. In 2021, who feel that way about women who aren't even being antagonistic like Barkin's character seems to be. And she's not even that bad either. There are guys out there who I like, who are friends of mine, who have said, I don't like when women do sports center. And I don't really watch those kinds of shows anymore. But whenever I see Jennifer Hedger, who's been doing it forever up here in Canada, or all kinds of other women, I don't even know their names. Fine. I'm actually more impressed with that. If they got that job, that's kind of cool as far as I'm concerned. But I guarantee you that's got to be another bit of a subtext here, either from the book or from the screenplay. The black-white thing we talked about earlier and also a woman daring to say anything about sports. I never thought for a second that it was an accident that the broadcaster character in this movie was a woman, particularly because that character is the one that is Gil's real platform for communicating with Bobby and also the platform for openly criticizing Bobby's performance when he's struggling. I do also think that the toxic viewpoint that you're describing now, I think that is still born out of maybe the same kind of thing that I was just complaining about earlier. They don't have a right to talk about it because they never played this game. And that might be true. I don't think there's the same opportunities even still today, I don't think there's the same opportunities for young women to play a lot of these sports because either the leagues don't exist. Where they do, I think there's still a perception that a lot of these sports aren't ladylike. So they don't get played the same way that they do by young men. That sort of toxic masculinity. I'm not a gender warrior or anything, but I don't think that being a man or woman affects your ability to look at what's happening on a sports field and assess it critically. That has nothing to do with gender, right? There may come a time where we look back in history and say a woman or someone who doesn't identify with either sex, which is becoming more common just in society, we may look back many years from now and say, hey, that person was the smartest sports analyst, writer, broadcaster, what have you, we've ever seen or heard of. Oh, 100%. I'm not sure you'd say that now, but it's mostly been white men who've done it over the years. But maybe in 50 years, you'll look back and say, wow, blank, unbelievable. And it may not have been a person that looked like you and me. It's a tricky thing talking about gender and sport because I have no problem with women 
who want to make the leap to professional sports that men play in and try to make their way there, that's fine. Whether it's Danica Patrick in racing or the young woman that played very briefly in a game for the Tampa Bay Lightning years and years ago. But it's tricky because there's unquestionable physiological differences, right, between men and women. Baseball is maybe one where that doesn't matter quite as much. But if you're talking about things like hockey and certainly football, I'm sorry, you can be the most fit and largest, strongest women on the planet, and you're still going to be playing against guys that are 350 to 400 pound linemen trying to run you over. And that's not easy for any fit man who by virtue of biology is going to be larger and more muscular than any incredibly fit woman. You've been watching Mandalorian though, like I have, right? I was trying to yeah, think of well, Hang on, here's my point. Gina Carano. Gina Carano. I have faith Gina Carano could handle herself against these guys. Gina Carano. Her at least. I'm six foot four, 210, whatever. She could bend me into a pretzel and twirl me around her head without blinking an eye, yeah. I'm sure. So maybe she'd be okay. Maybe she could be a running back or something. But my point is, I don't want to dissuade anybody from doing anything, but I think it's doing nobody any favors to not acknowledge that there are physiological barriers, if nothing else, to fully integrating sport. That's a bit of a tangent to what you were getting at, which is maybe this movie is trying to make a commentary on the right of women generally to just comment on sport alone, which I think is something that's still pervasive, as you said, in sport today. Ellen Barkin's doing that show with Kurt Fuller during the game as well, which is unusual, but maybe it's because they know. And again, I don't remember. I just saw this movie last night. And yet, for some reason, I don't remember for sure who knows that Sean's been kidnapped by Gail and who doesn't. She does know. Right. She knows. And I guess that by extension, that means that Kurt Fuller's character knows too. Why else would they be doing their talk show during a Giants game? I think because Tony Scott doesn't understand baseball is what it comes down to. And maybe Peter Abrahams doesn't when he wrote the book. And maybe the writer Fief Sutton doesn't either. That's true. It could be that. I was thinking of it, giving it a little bit of slack subconsciously maybe, because here in Toronto anyway, we have a guy named Mike Wilner that does a bunch of our baseball broadcasts here. And for years and years and years, he did the pre and post game shows. In more recent times, he took over some play-by-play -play work in addition to doing the post game stuff. So I thought, okay, well, maybe she's doing commentary during the game and then we'll host a post-game show but then why is she having gill call in that's true it doesn't make sense she's doing the call-in show that's what i'm saying she's doing a normal show live during a game but i think it's also to bring her back in the movie because ellen barkham is a major part of this cast she's third build as jewel stern she was a bit of a player at this point there's somebody who should have had more of a career than she did because she's sexy as all hell she's very talented but she doesn't have a lot of great titles in her resume sea of love with pacino and incidentally this cast could have been al pacino as Gil, and Bobby could have been Brad Pitt. Apparently that's what the studio wanted, was Pacino and Pitt in these two roles. And failure that this movie may be for everyone else, and it's not a raging success for either one of us, although we seem to like it more than the fans and the critics at the time, I think the casting of De Niro and Snipes is better than Pacino and Pitt. I would agree with that 100%. I think Pitt can probably pull off a baseball player just fine, but I'd question Pacino's ability to pull off some of those early movie moments where you're watching Gil go through the mental and physical trauma of what he's subjected to early in this movie. And maybe beside hearing Pacino say, with respect to Brad Pitt in the batter's box, he has a great ass. <laughs> Brad Pitt does, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And especially back in the mid-90s, have a great ass. Even now, I'm sure he does. Because you talked about broadcasting during that final game, the rain-out game, where Barkin is speaking to Gil, Gil is weirdly overconfident so he basically just tells her yeah i'm in the stadium and you're looking and waving right at me right so at that point we know and ellen barkin's character it's jewel right jewel jewel yeah 
So she knows that he can see her because she's waving and she's signaling to, I think, the FBI or the cops in addition to Leguizamo and Kurt Fuller and all that who are in the booth with her. While she's on the phone with Gil, Leguizamo leans over her shoulder and gives her like the keep him talking, keep him talking motion. <laughs> Dude, you just found out that De Niro is looking straight at Barkin and you're hanging over her shoulder, whispering in her ear and signaling as if he can't see you. He knows what you're doing. It was the most ridiculous bit of performance. <laughs> It immediately followed the moment when Barkin confirmed that he was looking at her because she was waving at him. Maybe they had to get like Wazamo back in the movie too because he hadn't been in it for like half an hour. That's some reason to get Barkin and like Wazamo some more screen time. They are third and fourth build. And like Wazamo, incidentally, as whatever he is, I think maybe Bobby's lover. And the movie doesn't want to go down that road too. Yeah. It's already tackling race issues and sex discrimination in subtle ways like we just talked about. But maybe it's going down the road of the black man is making out with the Hispanic guy because Leguizamo is always with Bobby, even when he's in his downtime in his beach house. I don't know. But Manny's really bad at his job. He can't get number 11 for Bobby, who doesn't find that out until opening day. He takes him to see a dying kid in the hospital, which is one thing that players do. They go to hospitals. They see kids who are sick. Maybe they see kids who are dying. Bobby's not that upset about it, but I think his whole point was, let me know he's dying before I walk in there so I don't act like, hey, you're going to be fine, Junior. And oh, God, no, you have days to live or hours to live. So Manny's bad at his job in the first place, I think, but he is always with Bobby, so I think there's something else going on there. <laughs> I love the fact that Manny failed at every aspect of his job in this movie. I don't think he succeeded once. He was just there to be the whipping boy for the most part. Every time something would go wrong, Wesley Snipes sort of like turn around and fix this, you moron, what's wrong with you? They talked about Primo, who was kind of Wesley Snipes' main antagonist, rather, for the first half of this movie. He's meant to be the quasi-star center fielder that Bobby Rayburn is displacing when he comes to San Francisco. How do neither Rayburn nor Manny know that Primo wears number 11. Until opening day. Until exactly. opening day. Like, yeah. These guys have been in the league together for years at this point. And even if you aren't paying attention to the players you're playing against on a regular basis, because Rayburn was with Atlanta, right? So I'm sure they played San Fran six, nine, 12 times a year. Even if that's not the case, does your agent not specify in the contract he wants number 11 when he signs it? Didn't they say they played each other in the playoffs the previous year because Bobby was with Atlanta? That's right. Or whatever it was, the end of the season or something like that. Bobby hurt San Francisco's playoff options and playoff chances by hitting some kind of three-run homer or something the previous year. Yes. So he literally knows Primo even more so because not only does he play him all the time, he played him in a big game only whatever that was five months ago. That movie, again, I don't think it understands baseball at all. It understands music, though. Did you notice how many Rolling Stones songs are in this movie? And you could just argue that Gil is a fan of the music. When we did Blue Chips, which we thought was okay, it had problems. But the music issue in that movie I had was it should be, for the most part, rap. The guys you're showing in this movie are going to be into rap. For some reason, William Friedkin, the director, has got all kinds of 60s hits because I think it comes down to, much like what this movie probably for Tony Scott is, I like this music, so that's what this music's going to be. And it makes more sense that Gil's listening to the Rolling Stones, but they play Sympathy for the Devil. No movie's ever done that before, except many, many times, including Fallen a year or two later with Denzel Washington, Start Me Up, which has also been in lots of movies, or Football Fields. You hear that all the time at Football Fields. Gimme Shelter. I thought it was a Scorsese movie for a minute there. But the song you hear probably more than the rest of them is The Nine Inch Nails Closer to God, which the year before was in Seven in the opening credits. I liked the insertion of the Rolling Stones stuff, particularly because it played directly into Gill's delusions, right? Because he talks to both his son and Wesley Snipes' son in this movie. The first time he talks about it, I thought this was actually really cleverly done. 
when he's talking to his son about the Mick Jagger song, and I don't remember specifically what song it was they were listening to, but he talks in 1978 and we partied all night. And you think, all right, well, this song released and Gil and his friends were partying all night listening to it. By the time that same conversation evolves with Bobby Rayburn's son about a different song, now he's more specific. Now he says, Mick and I stayed out all night partying. And you realize that, okay, in his head, he's always been talking about not just him and his friends listening to the Rolling Stones releases and partying. He's talking about him hanging out with Mick Jagger listening to these things as they released and partying. That's how twisted his worldview is. Bobby Rayburn might be the most outwardly visible expression of his delusion at this point, but he's clearly got a number of these things. And maybe it extends to his son. And maybe that kind of, if not excuses, at least explains some of his behaviors around his kid in the first half hour and how he treats both his ex-wife and passes off his own crazy behaviors as nothing at all. Because maybe in his mind's eye, those things aren't happening. Or when he remembers it, those things never happen. So he doesn't understand why people are reacting to him in the way they are. Yeah. Even people that aren't delusional do that kind of stuff. We all interpret reality, not completely wrongly, but maybe at least a little bit differently than it actually is. Bev and I talked about this recently on an episode we did where I said something about how I've misquoted movies when we've done the podcast with you or with her. And I'm pretty good about movie quotes or TV quotes. And I'll make sure I've got it right by looking on YouTube. And sometimes I'm way off. Does it matter? No, but I'm anal. I like to be accurate about that. So therefore I've created a reality that doesn't exist when it comes to something as simple as a movie quote. I guarantee you that if Bev and I saw something happen outside of our house tonight, or we were involved in a car accident or a robbery or whatever. And Bev talked about this in a recent episode too, where she did have a break in. She and the roommate described an entirely different person. People interpret things when they're not insane differently all the time. And clearly Gil's character was nuts before the movie got going, as it seems to be true about Michael Douglas's character, who's really on the tipping point when that movie gets going and then goes over the edge in the course of that one bad day. But you're right. Gil is delusional long before the movie starts and he gets more so as the movie goes on. And when he gets that little in by saving Sean in the water, so he does a good deed. Sean probably would have drowned. Although I don't know what was happening. Was the shark attacking him? Was the dog attacking him? I never really got why the kid was drowning. But he does a good deed, Gil does, and then at the end, the problem is, this guy did a good deed. Little does Bobby know. And I did like the way that Snipes played that towards the end of the night when they've been <laughs> outside playing baseball. Yeah. He doesn't overdo it, I don't think. It, Snipes is a good actor. He never got a lot of credit for that back in this time. And of course, he's messed up his own history by being the way he is. And the Blade stuff, you've heard those stories probably in Blade Trinity, it was, I think. And his tax issues and whatnot. But I like the way he plays the nervous realization that Gil is an obsessive weirdo. And I need to get out of here right now. Although the question becomes, how did Gil kidnap Sean and the dog without three people in that house noticing? The maid or whatever she is, the housekeeper, Manny, who's useless, and then Bobby himself. There's a lot of questions about how things can practically happen. And that's probably the first one that comes to mind. And just to answer your question, I realized what was happening there because growing up, I had a golden retriever who would do the same thing. He would panic when people would go swimming, whether it's a lake or a pool or whatever, and try to pull you out. First, he would try to like climb on you and grab the scruff of your neck. You're a hundred pound dog. You're going to drown me. Get off. I'm fine. Leave me alone. So I think that's what was happening here is this dog thought Sean was drowning. So he was going out to save him and almost drowning him by accident. That was a good in Gil had. And it's interesting the way that ramps up to that conversation between Gil and Bobby, because it starts out. Bobby says, I kind of know you, right? And of course, Gil's- The bar. Yeah, Gil's been quasi-stalking him, whether it's at the player's And the bar. voice he's heard on the phone a few times, too. 
I don't think he's seen him other than the bar, and that maybe didn't really play into his mind, but he might have recognized the face a little bit from that, and then the voice on the phone more than once. Because he, meaning Bobby, calls into that talk show too, and Gil is on the phone with him more than once. Yeah, they're on the phone together through the talk show twice. At that point, Gil had also been fired from his job, right? So he was going to every Giants game. And after every Giants game, I think he was hanging out by the player's exit. So it's one of those things where I've subconsciously seen this face in passing probably 30 or 40 times now. Oh, and because you mentioned the bar, let me just say real quick, I never really responded to your comments about players' responsibility to the media and the fans and all that. They wouldn't have the money available to pay them if it weren't for the fans. So they do have a responsibility beyond just playing the game to respond to the media and all that kind of fun stuff. And I think Charles Barkley put it very well earlier this year, and I'm not going to try to quote him. It's worth looking up if you haven't seen it, because Kyrie Irving, one of the star players for the New Jersey Nets in the NBA, said something at the beginning of the year to bugger off to the media. And Barkley responded basically by saying, you owe these people everything. Just get out there and answer a few questions. What's wrong with you? Right? Which is true. But I also did not begrudge Bobby that kind of flippant dismissal of Gill in that moment for the reason that the bar owner said, these guys spend their entire lives facing questions for the media, dealing with the fans and all that stuff. And this is the one place they come to because they know they're not going to get bothered here. So it's like the one little sanctuary space. And when that gets broken by Gill, I didn't really begrudge Bobby, especially knowing all we know that he's going through his character in this movie, dismissing Gill in that moment. When Gil meets Bobby for real for the first time after saving his kid and Bobby's reaction is, don't I know you from somewhere? And Gil says, no, I have one of those faces and I'm also not a baseball fan. But then from there, it kind of ramps up. Well, you know, I actually used to pitch a little bit and I had a cup of coffee in the bigs, which we find out is another delusion. And then he starts dropping other comments. I don't think Bobby ever outwardly reacted to these by the time they're out on the beach playing catch or Gil's pitching to Bobby. Gil says things like, how'd you get over the slump? If you don't follow baseball, you don't know that Bobby Rayburn's in a slump. Or was it the $40 million contract? And he sort of like ramps up details bit by bit that only a true fan, it ultimately leads to him saying, you could have said thank you for me killing. He doesn't say that. Word, but you could have said thank you because Gil killed Primo, if accidentally. He then in his mind thinks it led to Bobby getting out of his slump. Yeah, that movie makes it pretty clear that that's what Gil thinks, is I'm the reason why this happened. He wants a thank you for killing Primo, because he says to the TV, just himself, a thank you would be nice, watching TV and talking to it, like he sort of does in Taxi Driver, instantly. Yeah. But he does get a thank you from Bobby for saving Sean in the water. Of course, you got to say thank you for that. That's not hard to figure <laughs> out why. But he wanted the thank you, and he got it for a different kind of reason. In the scene where he kills Primo in the sauna, he sticks Primo with a knife while Primo's naked. Another subtextual layer in this movie, I talked about Manny maybe being with Bobby, that's the kind of thing. You have somebody naked in a shower, or a sauna in this case, and somebody gets stuck with something, impaled. I think you know where I'm going with this. Subtext, sticking. I don't get it, Ryan. Can you spell it out for me, just step by step? <laughs> Another reason the good question is, nobody can identify Gil walking out of that area, looking obviously wet and sweaty. He's wiping his <laughs> face. Nobody. They don't have video cameras in the mid-90s. They found this dead body. Maybe other players have been in there before, but Primo's by himself when Gil goes in, so nobody can identify him at all. Just like at the very end when Bobby gets in the pitcher's face with his bat, that doesn't clear the benches? Yeah. And he's actually saying intimidating things to him for good reason. It's because he doesn't want his son to get killed, but there's a lot of reasonably good questions in this movie, and I just named two or three in a spell right there, <laughs> stretch right there. Maybe that's part of the reason why the back half of this movie felt jarringly empty to me. Because that first half 
I so enjoyed watching De Niro's slide into further delusional madness. By the back half of it, when it becomes that thriller, there's so many gaping holes. A, there's zero security apparently around Primo at this hotel. How does Bobby know Primo's alone in the sauna to begin with? And You said Bobby, you mean Gil. Yeah, when Gil finds Primo at the sauna, how does he know he's there by himself? There's no security around the team at the hotel. There's no cameras. They don't look at any tapes when they find Primo dead to see if there's this sweaty guy in a suit that leaves the sauna. <laughs> and then later on, like you said, how does he get the Hummer? Does Bobby just leave the keys hanging in the garage, I guess? That one I believe. Okay, get in the car, I can believe. Okay. But getting a kid and his, and his dog, dog yeah. out of the house without three other people noticing? <laughs> exactly. How does he get the kid to the stadium in the sky place, lock him up, then get down to field level without anybody noticing him, somehow take out the home plate umpire that's due to work the game, replace him? During a rain delay, at least, that part is somewhat possible, but he had to get down into the area where there's security before any of these kinds of things are happening. And he's got to, I guess, kill the umpire and take his spot. And the other umpires don't notice this. I don't know why. There's four <laughs> umpires on the field. Nobody else notices that the guy's totally different at this point. I already talked about the mask that I found super weird because it looked nothing like I've ever seen, but it's an umpire's mask. It's not like it completely covers the face. You have to look pretty closely. But this is not the same man that was here last inning, right? And more importantly, Bobby was safe. <laughs> On the inside the park home run with his horrible swing. My one criticism of this movie, Bobby was clearly safe. He tied the game, goddammit. Gil made a bad call. <laughs> Come on, ump. I know you're a murderer and you did bat your friend to death earlier that, I guess, day or maybe the day before. But good God, you made a bad call. Although one nice touch, they're playing the Padres, which of course I think is Spanish, but the Padres baseball team, that is some kind of Hispanic, Spanish, whatever word for father. Yes. And the nice touch there is that Bobby, as a father, is worried about his son. That's true. They're also a divisional opponent. That's the main reason they're playing. <laughs> oh, one more thing. Eric, I think it's pronounced Bruscotter. It doesn't say this in the credits that I could find, but I recognize the voice. I looked it up. He is the Padres catcher. He's also the main catcher in Major League Two. Oh. Remember the dork that can't throw back to the mound and also won't swear and that kind of stuff? It's him. He's playing a catcher again, two years after he played a catcher in Major League Two. So he's been typecast. Yes. And also MC Ganey from the Mighty Ducks, who's the dude with the video camera, who's assigned to be with Emilio Estevez, but then stays with the team. Oh, yeah. He's the fan behind the other fan in the game where De Niro's being obnoxious with his kid. He's the dude behind there. You see him very briefly. He's only got that one scene. And Jack Black is in this, too. Jack Black was in two straight, and maybe more, but I can think of two straight... Tony Scott movies, because he was an enemy of the state, which I love. One of my favorite Tony Scott movies, two years later. He's one of the surveillance guys in that. And he's a technician in this movie. Yeah, he's like the radio producer. He's got a very small role. Let me ask you one last question, then, about the end of this movie. Okay. We have the scene on the beach earlier. Well, we never really touched on Coop, either, which is kind of a cool moment that contextualizes Gil's delusions. But early on the beach, he's pitching to Bobby, and he says, I want to give you my best pitch. He also cites some quotes about him and his catcher, Coop. And of course, it turns out Coop was his catcher in Little League, one of the cool reveals later in the movie. Bobby clues into Gil's madness, both when Gil removes his outer coat, Bobby sees that he's put on one of his jerseys. That looks good on you, nervously, and then Gil whips a pitch at his face. That's the point where he says, oh, okay, you know what, I'm tired, I'm going to bed. Keep the glove, and runs into the house with his dog. Gil yells, oh, but I haven't given you my best pitch. Fast forward to the end of the movie. Gil's been revealed as the umpire. He's got the big-ass knife in his holster because we found out earlier he's big into quality knives because his dad founded a small knife production sales company in the San Fran area. And we also see him 
bullseye a cockroach on his door with a crocodile dundee-esque knife toss earlier <laughs> in the movie that's a knife that's a knife so i gotta show you my best pitch and he pulls out one of those crocodile dundee style knives it doesn't look like he's throwing it at bobby or aiming at bobby in that moment it just looks like he's grabbing a knife and making the throw and then he gets gunned down by 18 different cops at once in a hail of bullets do you think he was truly trying to throw that knife at anyone be it bobby or otherwise or was that just suicide by cop because he says earlier in the movie what do you want well when they think about you bobby rayburn i want them to think about me so he realized at that point the only way this is going to end in the blaze of glory is if i get them to kill me on the field with bobby rayburn the answer i think is pretty simple he wants to be important so badly that if he does kill bobby great if i don't i'm still going to be infamous because that's what it is in King of Comedy, and that certainly is what it is in Taxi Driver. That's why I've always said the end of Taxi Driver, which really does tie into this movie in a lot of ways, 20 years before, one of the best movies Scorsese or Dinner ever made. The last five minutes or so of that movie is not real. That dude died in that whorehouse because he was so full of bullets and everything, and he imagines that everybody thought he was great. He's lionized as a hero. I don't think this character in this movie would think that, but same basic idea, which is I'm going to matter, I'm going to matter so hard that people will die just so I can matter. Gil, deserve it or not, has been shit on by life and all in a fairly short period of time. He pushed his ex away, obviously, and made her file a restraining order. And he lost the job because he doesn't deserve it that much, although his father did co-found the company. And he obviously isn't working very hard at his job or hard enough at his job if he can't even keep appointments. Gil brings a lot of this on himself, but I do understand why he's as upset as he is. But to just obsess about one guy the whole time, make it so much about him. It's funny, too, because Gil is a Giants fan, but he's also a Bobby fan. But when Bobby's not doing well through a lot of the season, but the Giants are, he's upset enough that, of course, he goes to kill Primo. Because i got to make sure Bobby gets what he wants. But if your team is winning and you care about that first and foremost, then that should matter more than Bobby doing well. Bobby will eventually start playing better, even if he doesn't play as well as he did before. He'll be a positive factor on a winning team. So that's also weird. Gil is obsessed about this guy, but he's also, I thought, more obsessed about the team. I didn't think that was that consistent in this movie either. If he cares about the Giants, that should matter more than any one player. I took that as an indicator of Gil's deteriorating mental state as a result of everything else that was going on in his life. You're supposed to be a Giants fan, first and foremost, and then a Bobby Rayburn fan, secondly. But maybe that just got flipped on its head because he loses everything else in his life. He can't see his son anymore. He has no job anymore. So instead, it ceases to be the Giants and instead just becomes about Bobby Rayburn. We see towards the end of the movie, Gil sort of has a lair set up in this stadium in the sky place with all of the Bobby Rayburn article cutouts on the wall and things like that. I wish the movie had made it a little bit more clear when he had done that. Had that lair been created in the off-season before the events of this movie even begin? Did the obsession already exist? Did the obsession come to be because of the events at the beginning of the movie. We know that he's got the psycho wall with all the cutouts and all that stuff, but we don't really know why. Well, the timeline is, The yeah. timeline is a little bit lacking. So that was how I squared that circle in my mind's eye, but that was just me guessing. It seemed a little inconsistent on its face. Well, despite all these flaws, the movie was not unentertaining, and it is deeper than I think some people give it credit for. I would give it a five and a half to six out of ten, which is certainly better than the critics and the audiences did 25 years ago. I would give it a six. If the movie had continued the first 40 minutes throughout and just stayed with that tone and not become the weird plot hole filled thriller towards the latter half, 
I think it would have been more like a seven or eight because even if De Niro wasn't giving his best performance ever, he's given a good performance. He's committed. He's just got that repertoire in his back pocket at this point, so it's fun to watch. Like you said, Snipes is good. And basically all of the supporting cast I thought was good. Barkin, Leguizamo, what have you. We only briefly touched on Primo, but Del Toro was just fine in this movie as well. We could probably drill down into like minutia aspects of this character's mental state and Bobby's behaviors and stuff like that for another hour. There's a lot to break down about this movie, and you touched on some of those subtexts as well. I think you're right. I think this movie didn't really get its due in its time. When I saw it the first time, I was like 15 years old, so I didn't really understand, I think, half of what the movie was trying to convey. I didn't like it much back then. I like it a lot more now, even if it is flawed. I might even give it more than a six. I might lead towards like a six and a half to seven out of ten. Well, Tony Scott, three sports movies. The first one we covered, Days of Thunder. The single best name. Cole Trickle. Isn't there like a Dick Trickle in there somewhere too? Or am I misremembering? I don't think so. His dad's name, I forget what it is, but he said, Daddy Issues. We didn't talk about that either. Bobby. So again, the Barry Bonds comparison. Bobby Bonds is an actual baseball player. Was Barry Bonds' dad. Not quite Hall of Fame caliber, but really talented. Bobby Rayburn's dad played baseball. This is Barry Bonds in this movie, even on that level. And in Days of Thunder, of course, there's daddy issues because of his father having been a race car driver. Oh, wait a minute. No, it's not his father, is it? No, it's, what am I talking about? John C. Riley's father was a race car driver. But I think Cole's dad was somehow involved. And then Last Boy Scout with the father-son issues because Bruce Willis could effectively be the father figure to Damon Wayans in that film, which covers football not that well. There's not that much football in it because we really did jam that into being a sports movie. But Tony's got three sports movies. This one is better than a lot of people thought it was at the time, I think, and so do you. And he loves his drenched fields in his <laughs> baseball and football movies. It's true. It's a trope at this point. It's soaked in Last Boy Scout, at least that opening scene, right? And maybe at the end, but definitely, no, just the opening scene in Last Boy Scout. And at the end with the lake, the ocean that is on that baseball field in Candlestick Park. Okay, well, we're now fully into 2021. We record this in 2020. Shh, don't tell anybody. But in two weeks, we'll be doing episode number 69, dudes. So how about something a little raunchy and wicked? We think so, anyway. We haven't seen this movie in a long time. Basketball. We're both on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. Emphasize those Gs and Ss and Ds. You can get this podcast anywhere you find podcasts. Just go to the service you used to get this one and... Well, subscribe to us, then you can't possibly miss an episode. We cover all kinds of sports movies, and we're doing, in a way, two straight baseball movies, but basketball, of course, has basketball in it. There better be some 69ing in that movie, by the way, Chris, or I'm blaming you. I will take that blame wholeheartedly. I want to see Parker and Stone doing some sucking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there'll be some moment in that movie where you're going to have to explain in great detail some imagery that I don't understand that involves the insertion of something into somebody else at some point in the movie. And I'll just stuck the knife in his thigh in a sauna where the other guy's naked. He stuck him. And it's a phallic object. Do you get my point? I still don't get I'll it. I'll keep on I'm doing sure this home. You don't get it. Oh my God. Does anyone understand what I'm trying to say? You're being too right. subtle. I don't get it. Well, take your easy dudes and stick <laughs> knives into people in the sauna. And then God knows what you do to their dead bodies. Cause you're a weird like Gil. I know that you will, Gil.